Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you. We are in Romans chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. We will stand and take verses 20 through 25. Romans chapter 4. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Again, verses 20 through 25. He is, the pronoun that we begin with is referring to Abraham. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our salvation. Please be seated. I know the last word there in the verse usually is translated justification, but that is salvation. Faith is a big deal. The big deal of faith, that's the title to this morning's message. And may we never forget it. Faith is a big deal. And uh, it's never automatic. Faith is not natural. It's not something that um, is, is always easy for us, and when it does seem to flow easily, it's because the Holy Spirit's at work. Hebrews 11 tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But it doesn't give us a date, does it, when he's going to give us that reward? Because we tend to look for it now. We tend to invest ourselves, to spend ourselves in Christ, and oftentimes we feel unappreciated, passed by. We see those maybe not working as hard, apparently doing better than we are. But the Lord is mindful of all of it, and he will make it right. We look now at verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Well, he's continuing to deal with the fact that the Jews were, many of the Jews were, Christian Jews, were harassing Gentile Christians, telling them, well, if you were not a born a Jew, you had to get circumcised, and you had to follow the Sabbaths, and on and on it went. By the time Paul gets to chapter 9, he's going to circle back around to his Jewish people, and he's going to say, listen, my heart is going out for you. You've got to come to Christ. And so we'll get to that um, when we get to chapter 9. This fourth chapter sort of sums up his initial dealings with the harassment going on. But from chapter 5, well, chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, It's just like this beautiful section of scripture in the midst of what he is trying to accomplish. And that is stabilize the faith, stabilize the churches, get a handle on the things that are wrong and and get them out by educating the believers. 
For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. He's referring to the promises that God laid on Abraham in, in Genesis 12, 18, and 22. That Abraham would be a blessing to all peoples. That he would receive land. That he would have more descendants that you couldn't, than you could ever number. All of this has, has happened and is happening Actually, the, many of the Jews in their ancient writings believe that um, uh, Abraham would receive all the land of the world. That's just a side note. Without the land, without the descendants, the promise could not be fulfilled. But the Jews have the land, and they do have the descendants. And Satan hates this. And those pro-Palestinian marches attest to Satan's hatred. This is something that's not going to change until Christ returns. Satan has set his sights on the Jews as a people because God has put his promises on them as a people. They have descendants galore. I mean, there are just many Jewish people in the world. Uh, even though so many people have, uh, have tried to commit genocide against them, to wipe them out. Satan hates uh, that the Jews, he hates the people. And every anti-Semite attests to a spiritual hatred. And we better be wise and be mindful of these things. And it is opportunity to preach the gospel whenever it comes up. So Paul's point is that the promise was received by Abraham. These promises that God gave him were through faith not becoming Jewish. Abraham was a Hebrew, but he was not a descendant of Jacob, Israel, who was a descendant of Abraham. The principle of salvation is grace unearned. It's not grace if you earn it. Not in the biblical sense. By faith. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Abraham was accepted by God outside of Judaism. What he had to do is trust God. That's what he did. He trusted God. He believed God's word. When God promised him something, he believed it. Habakkuk the prophet makes this simple little statement. The just shall live by faith. Those who are right with God are going to trust God. Now we have our moments, and Abraham had his, where he stumbled also. But always under the canopy of ultimate trust in God. As Job said, though he slay me, I will trust in him. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's faith in action under pressure. By faith. This is found, that statement, by faith, echoing Habakkuk, <clears throat> 40 times in the New Testament. 18 of them in Hebrews 11. And we read, by faith Abraham, by faith Moses, by, and on and on it goes. The Bible's telling us without faith it's impossible because faith is a big deal. It's impossible to please God without it. Paul earlier wrote to the Galatians, Therefore know that only those who are of the faith are sons of Abraham. Maybe you say, I know all this. This is basic Christianity. Yeah, but do you tell anybody who doesn't know it? There's a need for people to know that faith is a very big deal with God. And if you don't have it, you've had it. 
and it behooves the individual to explore these things from the scripture, as Paul points out at the end of this fourth chapter, that these things are recorded and preserved for us today. Our work does not make us acceptable to God. God's work in Christ alone makes us acceptable. We covered that last session. So in this sense, Abraham became the father of the world's spiritual offspring. In this sense. Now he wasn't the first one to exercise faith, of course. Abel had faith and uh, Abel, the first man to taste death and to taste it on behalf of his faith also. Uh, Enoch had faith. There certainly were others. Noah. But we're talking about Abraham because this is directly related to the harassment that was going on, the theological harassment within the church. Romans chapter 4, verse 11, just two verses back from where we started this morning, he says that he might be the father of all those who believe. He's the example in that sense. Abraham is the template or a template in Scripture. And for the Jews, that's sort of their starting point as a, as a people. Abraham is, that is. And if we're going to get anywhere with God, it will be through faith in God. We're going to talk, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to keep appealing back layer after layer, driving it home. Because I think we lose sight of this sometimes, many times. To just trust God and to be satisfied. To be content. Yeah, very difficult if you take your eyes off the Lord. Verse 14, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. Well, if being born under Mosaic law saves the soul, who needs faith? I was born a Jew. I don't have to have faith, if by that wrong, the erroneous logic. When, when in John chapter 1, John deals with, and John writes years after the, the Roman letter, but he covers this in the very first chapter. Uh, wanting to read it all, much of it, we'll just have to settle for verse 13. It's not those who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, by faith. Which brings us to repentance, which brings us to service. Born. Not of blood. You're just not, okay, I was born into a Christian home. Therefore, I'm going to heaven. Yeah, that, that, that's not true. You might be going to heaven, but it won't be because you're born in a Christian home. That might help you get there in that it exposes you to the truth of God. It gives you the light and a head start. What are you going to do with the head start, Christian? Born in a Christian home? What are you going to do with that? That is an advantage. A lot of them throw it away. And uh, we, um, we don't take that kind of stuff lightly. We war over that on our knees. And you get to heaven, you'll find a lot of people, if we could say heaven's going to be this way to some degree, there are going to be a lot of people there who will say, I got to heaven because people were praying for me. That happened to me. There's no way I was going to heaven. There were people praying for me. And I didn't know it. And if I knew it, I'd probably have something nasty to say about it. God hid that from me. But he did not hide my salvation from me. It took years. And a lot of heartache on those who were praying. Well, the reason God rejects our trust in our good deeds, earning 
our way into heaven is that to offer deeds to God, our good deeds, instead of receiving his son's sacrifice, belittles the death of Christ. It, it mocks the death of Christ. It says, you did not need to die for me. I can make myself acceptable without you. I don't need your blood. It's kind of what Cain was saying. It is what Cain was saying. It is the story of Cain and Abel. Cain, Cain hated Abel. He came to hate his brother because his brother was accepted and he was rejected. How dare you reject me? As hard as I work in those fields, as beautiful a fruit basket as I brought, all he does is go out there with the sheep and then he comes in and gets blessed. And as Cain killed Abel, so the flesh tries to kill the spiritual nature in us also. By making grace of no effect. Grace is useless. I can just do good. God will be impressed with this. He's not. God is impressed with what he has done. And he receives us when we receive what he has done in the cross. Verse 15, because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Well, the bottom line, he said, if God didn't tell you what was wrong, then there'd be no problem. Everybody could just do whatever you want to do. But he has told us what's wrong. And we can't keep from doing what's wrong. Having a nature beyond my absolute control, we cannot fully obey God. Now, the little bit we can obey goes a long way. Let's not lose sight of that. Satan hates a little bit of obedience in us. A single act of disobedience is sin. One act. That's all it takes to damn the soul. That's all it takes to prove that heaven says, you don't belong here. Sin is a violation of God's will and calls for justice. That's part of the law. The law says, you shall do this. And if you don't, I'm going to do that. Again, my fallen nature disables my full obedience. Thus, God's wrath is upon me. If that's the whole story, I'm guilty. And he's going to deal in wrath with the guilty. John chapter 3, verse 36. A verse I encourage you, if you have not, to memorize. Because maybe you'll get in front of an unbeliever and get to share this with them. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And then we have to explain that, right? What does that mean, everlasting life? It doesn't mean I'm going to live, continue to live in the state I am in now. I don't mean Virginia. I mean the condition that I uh, am subject to in this world. Everlasting life means there'll be no more sorrow, no more pain. There'll be glory. And then he says, he, repeating, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe... The Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus said these words. I'll agree with Jesus long before I agree with anybody else. And may that never change. And may that be true of you also. I agree with the people who agree with Christ. I disagree with the people who disagree with Christ. A very basic formula. I have every right to do that. And they have every right to go to hell if they insist. But they also have an opportunity not to go to hell. It is not a right, it is grace. The law proves we violate God's values. If, 
you know, the Old Testament gives us the Ten Commandments in the negative. You shall not kill. You shall not. You shall not. Jesus comes along and says, you know, that's all in force, but I'm going to say it to you a little differently. I'm going to put it in the positive. You shall love your neighbor. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's all of you. Leaves little room for anything else. Jesus said, my com- this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Have there been times when you didn't want that verse in the Bible? Well, i got to say, I, I, as a Christian, I, I feel like I do love, genuinely love. Now, that doesn't mean I like a lot of people or like what they do. Uh, But it does mean I'm always looking for an opportunity to preach the gospel to even those that I really don't like. It's in there. But it's imperfect. But Jesus can work with that. Because he has nothing else to work with when it comes to us. He is imperfect slaves. Servants. Jesus' lovers are imperfect this side of heaven. Peter, the great apostle, came to realize that he did not have perfect love. He thought he did. I'll die for you. Nobody. These guys are going to forsake you, but I love you. Well, Christ got back to that, did he not? There on the lakeside in Galilee. He said to him, Peter, do you agape me? That's the highest form of love we get out of the New Testament. When the New Testament says God is love, it uses that Greek word agape. Now, here they are speaking by the lakeside in the Aramaic. But John is savvy enough to know how to put it into the Greek so we lose nothing of the exchange. And So Jesus kept saying to him twice already, Do you love me? Do you agape me? Peter is, I phileo you. See, we, we have one word for love usually. As believers, we can say, I say I love my truck. But... I say, I love my children. It's not the same love. I love my truck more. (laughs) No objection from the front row. Of course, we love our children more than other things, than, than chocolate or whatever. Well, the Greek helps them with that. They use different Greek words for love. They use for family love, they use stroge. They for for. Uh, erotic love, good or bad, eros. For the love of things, passion for things, phileo. When you get a, uh, you know, a PhD, it's a doctor of philosophy. That word philosophy comes from the Greek word phileo. They love that discipline. So much so that they invested so many years of their life reaching that standard. Well, or that level. Uh, But agape. So when Jesus said to him, Simon Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me? Peter said, I can't can't get that high. I I have passion for you, Lord. I want to say agape, but I can't. So what I'm trying to draw out is just our imperfections. What does Christ do when he deals with him with this? He sends him to be a preacher, a pastor of the sheep. So let's take it, John 21, 17. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah. So there'd be no mistake. Singling him out. Do you phileo me? So now Jesus downsizes his question. Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time. (laughs) Peter's in agony. He wants to pull the fire alarm or somebody get him out of this moment. He was for a third time, do you phileo me? And he said to him, 
Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo. You, Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. That's what I need. I need your head in it. I, I don't need your best because you can't, your best is not good enough. I need you to love. I need you to be aggressive in serving me. Because who needs a savior, savior to die for sinners if sinners can find another way to heaven? Nobody needs that kind of a savior that would die if there were some other way. The entire concept of earning salvation mocks the death of Christ. We are inferior. We can't love him like we want, but we can love him enough. And that's what Paul is trying to say. Abraham wasn't perfect, but he was good enough by faith. That's what got that relationship between he and God. Well, he says here in verse 15, For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Well, God's law draws the line. I covered that already. By nature, I am a sinner. Original sin. If I had died in the womb, I would still have been a sinner. It would not have been, well, one day he might sin. It would have been no question. He's going to sin because that we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. I think I said that right. If not, you can fix it. It's not that hard. Anyhow, trespass is the act of the sin. It's carrying it out, crossing the line. Iniquity is the sum total of the two. David said, I was born in iniquity. I, is everything about me is, is not right because of sin. Verse 16, therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Well, there's a lot of heads uh, spinning around in circles when they heard that the Gentiles have Abraham as a father too. No, he's just for the Jews, they would have protested. And that's what he's trying to, to fix there in the church. Faith links us to grace. Without faith, there's not going to be the grace. That undeserved kindness towards us again. You might have to explain that to an unbeliever. Let me tell you what grace is theologically from the Bible. Because you could it's the grace of a ballerina. This is the grace of a quarterback in the pocket. I mean, it's just such great. You've, you know, you've watched all these big guys knocking each other around. This guy's cool as a cucumber looking down the field and throws the ball and makes a touchdown. That's grace too. But that's not biblical grace. Biblical grace is not, it goes beyond poise. It is undeserved kindness. Now, we use a heart as an image of love. But it is the hands lifted to God that are the image of faith. Lamentations. This is Jeremiah. Jeremiah, oh, the prophet, you know, just devastated at the loss of his beloved Jerusalem. And he writes about it to just a catharsis, cathartic, you know, his heart just pouring out. And he says in Lamentations 3, verse 41, so he's fighting, it's a fight of faith. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. Psalm 134, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. The hands, they are that emblem of faith reaching up to God. As a little child, you know you have a little child like two years old and they reach up to be picked up. It's so beautiful, so wonderful, right? Well, that's, that's what happens when we're holding our arms up. We're asking God to pick us up too. 
It's all love. It's all trust. And those uncertain about their salvation, they're uncertain because they're not looking at the finished work of Christ and they're not resolving to leave it there. They're looking at the cross and I'm going to leave it there. And then when they turn to walk away to go do things, they take away the faith with them. It's hard. It's a fight for some. Jesus in John 19 said at the end of his life, he said it's finished. The salvation process is complete. No one's going to add to this. No one's going to take away from it. Then he released his humanity. He dismissed his humanity. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Is your trust in his finished work weaker than your sense of guilt? The very guilt he died to remove and rose to prove. I'm going to ask that question again. Is your trust in his finished work I'll put it in the positive. Is it stronger than your sense of guilt? Because you're guilty. That's not going to change. You're not going to wake up one morning and say, huh, I'm no longer guilty. If you do, you'll be in heaven. So, we got to deal with this. Abraham left altars everywhere he went. But faith gave meaning to those altars. Other people had altars too. But God didn't receive them. There's no faith there. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence, the proof of the unseen. The substance, it's the real McCoy, it's that which you can touch. It's not a shadow. Faith is a big deal with God, and it better be a big deal with us. In Galatians 3 9, Paul again, so then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So, here in Romans, he's building on what he had already taught in Galatians. It was that much of a problem. It was a serious issue in the early church. And this man did not back down from it. Let the Savior be the Savior. Understanding that. He did not die to give us a gift that he'd snatch back when the pressure was on. When we fail. Oh, I'm going to take it back now. That's not salvation. There's nothing that can snatch you out of God's hands. Not even your own messed up ways. Not even my messed up ways. Uh, I believe when John said, I've written to you that you may know that you have Temporary life. Yeah, no, he didn't say that. It's eternal life. I've written to you so you can go out with a robust faith because if you don't, if you've got this wishy washy faith, you're not stable. You're tossed to and fro. And if it's not by every wind of doctrine, it's by every mistake you make. How useful can you be long term? How are you going to make the long haul of faith? And it is a long haul. Life is short in some senses. In other senses, sometimes it's too long. Who is the father of us all in the sense of faith? The Jewish people, they were among the natural descendants of Abraham, but not necessarily the spiritual one. So he's using metaphor. Paul is extending. He's extending this relationship that Abraham had to anybody who has the same faith. Verse 17, he's, now he goes back to the scripture. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. God, 
who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. So you got to, I didn't read that paying enough attention to the parentheses. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him, he kind of goes back to that now. When God sees the born again, the born again soul, he sees the finished work. He sees all the shortcomings too, but, but his judgment is not, his wrath is not upon us because he sees us in our glorified state, justified. Peter, he said in his first letter in the second chapter, who himself bore our sins in his own body on a tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes we were healed. Healed is past tense. It's ongoing. Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The development of the faith. So it's not like, okay, I, I haven't sinned today. Oops, I sinned. And I got to go get forgiveness again so I can be born again. So I can what? Be pleasing again. When we come to Christ, we're saved. That's what the word means. Let's not treat the word as it means almost saved, sometimes saved, seasonally saved, partly saved, conditionally saved. We are saved by the blood of Christ. And it's hard because, you know, we want, we, we come to love him, we want to do everything right. Well, it ain't going to happen. I want, as a pastor, to do everything right. I don't want on my drive home or my day off to have pop into my mind something I said wrong and did not qualify or missed a punch or whatever. But I am. Comes with it. And we can say in the world, well, if you can't stand the heat, get out the kitchen. Well, it applies to Christianity. We can stand the heat in Christ. But I, we have to have a sobering approach to these things. And once we have a sobering approach and we begin to understand how profound this grace is, love only increases. Devotion increases. Determination increases. Resolve strengthens. We become that mighty fortress. And the evidence of that is how irritated hell gets over your sticking in the faith. God who gives life to the dead. Dual application, of course, in, Sarah, in Abraham's day, Abraham and Sarah were beyond the natural abilities to have a child. He was almost 100, if not 100. She is 90, and yet they have a child, which made tossing the ball around the yard with the child <laughs> very difficult. <laughs> I've never played baseball with a 110-year-old. But anyway... God looked out for Isaac. He knew he was being born into an old home, and he looked out for him. And Isaac is one of my favorites in the scripture. Talk about a peacemaker, a, a person that just did not strive uh, to, and, got, and was a hard worker, a well digger. Uh, a beautiful character. He, he is sort of, you know, he's between Abraham and Jacob, and you sort of can miss things with him. But if you read that life of Isaac there in Genesis, you'll find there's a lot of rich information about his character that would make you, uh, hopefully, a little envious in, in a righteous way. Anyway, 
The first meaning Abraham and Sarah. The second is the resurrection. Of course, God who gives life to the dead. Abraham and Sarah could bring no child into this world through natural abilities, not the accepted child, not together. Abraham and Hagar was a disaster. It's a disaster to this day. It is the mistake that keeps being a mistake. But we, neither can we, be brought into heaven by natural means. Abraham and Sarah could not have a child by natural means. You can't get into heaven by natural means. That's the point, some of the points that he's making here. Faith is that element that changes everything. So, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses in sin. Yeah, I'm talking to you. That's what you read, and you, that's what it's saying. Don't act like it's the guy in back of you and it doesn't apply to you. Uh, the question that was good to ask sometimes, do you believe God loves your neighbor? Well, maybe that's too close. Maybe, do you believe God loves your friend's neighbor? Well, I think all Christians would say, yeah, God is love. He loves people. He doesn't like what they do, but he loves them, and the cross is a testimony to that. Well, do you believe God loves you? See, that's making the faith real. Uh, don't, don't play this game where you, you know, you've got the antidote, but it doesn't work on you. If it doesn't work on you, then you don't have it. It works on you, too. And you look at an, so if so when, as a pastor, you say to somebody who's come in and their life's a mess because they've been in sin, and you say, look, God loves you, he's going to forgive you, you've got to work at fixing, uh, you know, cleaning this up. Well, what about you, pastor, when you mess up? Do you think God still loves you? Yeah, I do. By faith, I do. And I hope that um, that never uh, diminishes in my life. And I hope it increases, uh, it actually increases. It's um, something very beautiful about laying hold of the faith with that blessed assurance. Verse, I guess, uh, you know one of the best pictures of going at your faith, I think, in Scripture? Is when David went after Goliath. He ran to Goliath. He's like, let's get this done. <laughs> I got things to do. I got raisin cakes in that cart. I've got stuff. And, and he just I'm going to kill you, take your head, and then go about my business. And, as, and only I'll keep the head for three days. <laughs> Until the flies became unbearable. Anyway, uh, I, anyway verse 18. <laughs> Who contrary to hope, in hope believed... So that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. That's what God said to Abraham in Genesis 15, 5. So shall your descendants be. Let's read it. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. God said to Abraham, like these stars. When I was in Israel, I asked the tour guide, is there any place we can go where we can get a good look at the sky? I want to see what Abraham saw. He looked at me like I was crazy. He did. It's like, it's like okay, well, you're, you're not a student of the word, so I get it, and I'm not going to break it down to you because, you know, you already ruined it with your carnal self. So, <laughs> no, so I took a picture of him and <laughs> made a dartboard. No, I did not. All right. So... Anyway, Abraham saw beyond the natural because of God. 
And uh, that's what faith sees the natural, then it sees beyond the natural. And takes the two and puts them together. The big deal in Abraham's life was faith, not ritual, not circumcision, not Sabbath, not diet. Faith is supernatural, but it is never unreasonable. Now, it might be unreasonable according to people. So when Paul said the, the foolishness of the world, not the foolishness of reality, not the foolishness of God. God has chosen the foolish things of the world, how they view things. To them, Christianity might be foolish. But to God it is not. It's bloody. And to us, it's often difficult and bloody. Well, it's got to have the faith to make it worth work. Uh, Abraham went beyond that wishful hope. Boy, I sure hope so. That's not the kind of hope he had. It was the hope born of excitement. I can't wait. It's the hope a child gets on Christmas morning, the night before Christmas, you know, the, hoping for that day to hurry up and get here. The excitement, not the doubt. And uh, so he went beyond uh, and he trusted the promises, which we are to do, which we often do. And so when we think of hope, uh, it's, it's in this context, look at verse 21 of Romans chapter 4, being fully convinced. You see, that's the kind of hope that Abraham had. It was not that, you know, possibility. It was the fact is it is done. And so uh, we move to verse 19, that, um, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Well, we talked about that already, but uh, should add, not being weak in faith, that always stands out when you read this section because we all want that. But even Abraham had weak moments of faith. I mean, there's a whole episode in Egypt, uh, you know, where he said, Sarah, listen, I know you're in your 70s, but you were hot. And these guys are going to want to kill you. They're going to kill me for you. Tell them you're my sister, because technically you are. But don't tell them you're my wife, because... And, and, and Sarah said, okay, good wife that she was. And um, it was a disaster. And Abraham, and then his son Isaac picks up and does the same thing. Gets, does the same thing. Apple didn't fall from the tree on that occasion. But anyway, he did not consider his own body already dead. Yeah, Abraham, he failed to doubt. He forgot to doubt God. <laughs> Which I could, you know, as you could, uh, you get, if you start to get forgetful, may, may I forget to be doubtful of God. He did not adhere to the Jewish religion. He adhered to faith. John 8, 36. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Do you believe it? Well, he makes me free when I obey. That's not grace. You're back to the merit system. What if, what if, I, what if I sin every day? Well, when Peter said, how many times do I forgive my brother? And Jesus told him, oh, a bunch. Well, this applies to us too. Obedience does not add to our salvation. It flows from it. It's like, boy, I am really, I am really saved today. I have not goofed. I am better than you. I, could you imagine? Could you imagine if we had a merit system in Christianity? As smug as Christians can be without any help from God. 
Could you imagine if God says, you know, I really like it when you outdo everybody, uh, you know, and have pride? Oh, man. Uh, we don't try to be saved or remain to be saved. We trust in the work that we are saved. And we are assured that we will be. You know, David, King David, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Nothing There's no evidence in Scripture that anything ever took that from him, that assurance. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you said to David, are you perfect? He says, I am a worm. No, I'm not perfect. But I'm assured. Why is it difficult to get Christians to understand what their salvation is truly made of? If you begin to understand it, you'd be less bothered by things. You're still going to get hurt. You're still going to take hits. You're still going to have your lazy moments, your messed up moments. But overall, you are a menace to hell. And hell knows it. Verse 40. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Now, I pointed out that he didn't always get it right, because somebody might come along and try to think that Abraham had a blab it and grab it faith, that prosperity teaches just motivational greed. Uh, That is not the case. Paul is talking about this particular day and the overall life of Abraham. But there were times, as I mentioned with Sarah, that Abraham did not have the faith. He did waver at some point. And God never said, you know, Abraham, you really let me down. I'm going to have to find somebody else now. Not at all. What an epitaph. He did not waver at the promises of God. I'd like to have that on my tombstone. Well, I don't want a tombstone. I don't care what you do with me. Just don't put me on the mantle. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, there's Rick in that jar. No, no. Anyway, no, no offense now. See, that's what I mean. That kind of stuff will hit me tomorrow. So you know what? There's probably somebody that has a loved one on the mantle, and I just came and said that, and I'm not trying to insult you. I just don't want to be there myself. Uh, you know, it's, it's okay if you do. It's not a sin. Well, um, I got out of that one. Coming back to this, so, someone say, no, you didn't. I'll see you at the greeting line, punk. <laughs> Shoelaces untied, Pastor, huh? Boom. Oh, yeah. All right. Anyway, there's <laughs> a picture of Abraham that I wish an artist would grab hold of. I, lo- I don't mean the weird Picasso type artists, because <laughs> they were that close, man. You had almost a good picture, then you put these lines in it. Anyway, there's a picture of Abraham's faith that I love in that 15th chapter where he beats away the vultures of doubt. He makes this altar for God, and he's waiting on the Lord. And the Lord is just not showing up right away. And the vultures are like, you know what, I can eat that. And they're coming down in Genesis fifteen eleven. And when the vultures came down on the carcass, <clears throat> Abraham drove them away. That's a picture of you and me driving the doubt, driving away those things that would steal what we have for God. This altar's for God. It's not for you buzzards. Go get your own meal. And when they came down, and then when God shows up, what happens? Abraham falls asleep. God now is watching over the sacrifice. 
Abraham doesn't have to be awake to drive the vultures away. God is there. Great terror fell upon him, and God ministered to Abraham. Verse 21, and being fully convinced that he was, read that again, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform, verse 22, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Faith is a big deal. That's what was counted to him as righteousness. Hebrews 11, verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, some of you do that (laughs) out of the context of faith. But in the context of faith, he was told to get away from his family, and he did it. Even then, it took a little time to fully pull it off, but he did. And um, that's how he gained favor with God. Abraham is called in Isaiah 41, the friend of God. Michael, the archangel, is not called that. Not that he isn't. Uh, Noah, it's just an interesting thing that, it, that, that Abraham was called a friend of God. How did he get there? Faith. Now, verse 23. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Paul never loses sight of the gospel. Everything he's been about in dealing with wrong behavior in Christians or whoever always comes back to the cross of Christ and his empty tomb and the throne of God where Christ sits. As Abraham was put into a situation where only faith could avail, so are we. That's the point. As Abraham was put into a situation where only faith could avail, so are we. We get put into situations where it's only going to be trust in God. Even if you lose that thing you were holding on to, hoping God would keep it with you, and you lose it, you still say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, because there's more to me than this life, there is the everlasting life. And his reward is with him. He will reward He'll make it right. And when we get to heaven, there's not going to be, yeah, but you know, it's not going to be that. Um, Anyway, salvation is by faith, and by faith alone in Christ. And thus the two ways are compared. They're contrasted. Salvation by trying or salvation by trusting. Which is it going to be, Christian? Well, right now during this sermon, I'm trusting God. Well, that really doesn't matter is if when you hit the street, when you hit the beach... You stop again. Well, if you're struggling like that, just keep pushing forward. God's not going anywhere. Keep pushing forward. Ask the Holy Spirit to shove you forward if that's what it's going to take. But don't move away from trusting the Lord. Verse 25, who is delivered up, who was delivered up because of our offenses and raised because of our justification. Well, salvation is for those who have sinned. And so is faith. It's, it's a balanced system. He said, God handed Jesus over to die as a representative of sinful humans. Isaiah 53, verse 5. And I close with this verse. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, 
But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. There's the gospel right there. Titus 3.5. Let's pray. Our Father, um, again, your word, nothing, nothing casual about it. Nothing it's not a nonchalant document that we can just pick at. It's, it is that which draws us, invites us, challenges us, sets us straight. And the whole time, the whole time is loving us. What you have to say to us from your scripture is love. And we who believe are so grateful that you have put in place this plan of salvation to rescue us from ourselves. If you've been listening or watching online or listening online or you're here in the church and you've not opened your heart to Christ, you have a chance to receive him. You're not going to get to heaven any other way. And if you believe that you will, you have no basis for that. You're making it up or you're following someone else who's made it up. It's man born. It's idolatry. But the truth is that you are a sinner and you know it. And you need a savior. And you've got to face it or miss out and have no savior. And the wrath of God be upon you. But if you'd like to have the love of Christ upon you instead of the wrath, then come. Open your heart to him. Invite him in. Tell the truth about yourself. Say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. And I ask you to forgive me right here, right now. And that I would be from this day forward. Not only forgiven, but your child. That you would be my Savior and my Lord. I give my life to you. And may I never take it back. Now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, when they are invited, may they come forward, admit it, share it, and may the blessings stand. These things we commit to your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.